It takes a very special kind of person to launch a nonprofit. I would argue it should. A founder doesn't just see the problem and feel compelled to solve it. A founder has some kind of superpower, almost like this combination of a superpower x-ray and peripheral vision. They look around, they see the circumstances around the problem, and then they can also look at the problem with this kind of x-ray vision and see a root cause. When a founder sees context and root cause, guess what they find? A gap. And that gap becomes the kernel of an idea that can lead to a new nonprofit. Founders ask, what if? They most definitely ask, why not? And they do so with a unique kind of tenacity and a certain dose of P.T. Barnum. Founders are persuasive, vocal, and they can be wildly effective in building a small army to bring the work to life. Yes, I marvel at founders. We all should. Now, of course, many of us know the flip side. Founders have a hard time letting go of that which they found. But not my guest today. Today, I called this episode the case of the serial founder. My guest cannot seem to help herself. And it makes sense. If you have this kind of superpower, you just can't shut it off, right? You keep looking around, seeing the context, looking deeper, seeing the gaps. When I met our guest today, I had a ridiculous number of questions. So I decided to save them for today. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Robin Steinberg is a leader and a pioneer in the field of indigent defense. Since graduating from the New York University School of Law in 1982, Robin has spent her entire career as a public defender. In 1997, Robin founded the Bronx Defenders, where she helped develop a model of holistic defense, a client-centered model of public defense that uses interdisciplinary teams of advocates to address both the underlying causes and collateral consequences of criminal justice involvement. Robin has been honored by the National League Aid and Defender Association for her, quote, exceptional vision, devotion, and service in the quest for equal justice, end quote and by the New York Bar Association for her outstanding contributions in the, to the delivery of defense services. She was awarded Harvard Law School's Wasserstein Fellowship in recognition of her outstanding contributions and dedication to public interest law. Robin is also the founder of Still She Rises, the first public defense office in the country dedicated exclusively to the representation of mothers in the criminal justice system. Not enough for you? She's also the founder and CEO of The Bail Project. Robin is a graduate of UC Berkeley and earned her law degree from NYU School of Law. As you can imagine, her list of accolades, published articles, and speaking gigs go on and on. Robin, welcome. I'm glad you're with us today. Thanks for having me. So, Robin, tell us about yourself. We've spoken a few times. We have some people in common. I've learned that if you look up Force of Nature in Webster's, it says, i.e., Robin Steinberg. Your bio is pretty crazy impressive. So I just need to know... Were you like litigating at the Thanksgiving table when you were 12? Did you know that law was in your future? I didn't know that law was in my future, um, and I certainly didn't at the age of 12. Uh, to be honest, I was a rather shy young person, um, pretty much on the outside of most social groups, um, although I did have, uh, as I think my family would attest, a rebellious spirit um, from the time that I was pretty young, but uh, not something that I did publicly. Now, if, if I had been at that Thanksgiving table and I was like that annoying aunt and said, Look, you're Robin, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you probably have said? 
It depends on when you asked me. You might have asked me when I was in elementary school, and I might have said an NFL quarterback. Um, you, I actually did a report on that when I was in third grade. Um, I might have told you I wanted to be a nurse. I have no idea why I hate blood and all things medical. Um, I think it's because I loved Diana Carroll on that show when I was growing up, and I thought, I'm going to be a nurse. Um, so I didn't really have a lot of direction about what I wanted to be and where I was going through much of my childhood, I'm sorry to say. I wasn't one of those directed kids. Um, I think that's actually, I always worry about those directed people. Like, what if they were so directed and they got to where they wanted to go and then they realized they didn't like it? Fair. Um, What led you to law? So when I was in college at UC Berkeley, I majored in women's studies and um, became really, really sort of deeply involved in thinking about um, gender issues and sexuality and women's studies from an interdisciplinary perspective. Um, And it was the first thing that really captured my mind intellectually, you know, sort of something I could think about and social change I could envision um, and a movement I was a part of. Um, and I was very much, I think, influenced, you know, going to college by the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up. So it seemed natural. And I wanted to figure out what to do with that desire to work around women's rights issues. And there were really two choices that I could think of. Maybe I didn't have enough imagination, but one was to become an academic, which seemed completely wrong for me. Um, and the other was to think about using a law degree as a tool for social justice and for change and to do women's rights litigation. So that is what I did. I applied to law school after a year in between college and law school where I was a secretary and then went on to go to law school with the dream and goal of being a women's rights litigator. And so you became a litigator. You actually went into the field of public defense. And uh, I remember you telling me uh, that that you liked it, but you were not interested in sort of managing or like you liked the work, but didn't necessarily see yourself moving up in the ranks to like run stuff. That's absolutely true. Um, when I joined the ranks of the public defenders in 1982 at the Legal Aid Society in New York City um, and in Nassau County, I was completely immersed in the work. Um, every single client, every single story, every single case, and I couldn't imagine a job that I loved more. And so I was a public defender on the front lines doing you know, representation for individual clients for um, the first eight years of my career, never occurred to me to be a manager, never wanted to be a supervisor, didn't apply for any of those jobs, didn't even think about that, wasn't even in my brain um, until 1989 when I was approached by two people, Chris Stone and Rick Finkelstein, who asked if I wanted to possibly come with them for a new project that the Vera Institute of Justice was launching um, called the Neighborhood Defender Service of Harlem and would I want to be a team leader or supervisor in this new idea and new project. That was the very first time it ever occurred to me to be anything like a supervisor. And it, it, it wasn't because you wanted to be a supervisor. It's because the, the project appealed to you, correct? Oh, 100%. The idea of starting a new public defender office was about as exciting as anything I could possibly imagine. So can you describe for folks who don't know Bronx Defenders, and I have the privilege of knowing something about it, what makes Bronx Defenders unique? When you started it, what was the... You know, I talked about founders at the beginning of this episode and this peripheral vision about context and about x-ray vision and gaps. Where, what were you seeing peripherally and what, was the, what were the gaps that Bronx Defenders um, uh, was designed to fill? 
Well, you only have to be in the criminal justice system for about three minutes before you can see gaps everywhere, um, gaps in how representation gets provided to people, gaps between the lawyers providing the representation and their clients, gaps between the public defenders and the communities that they're serving. Um, so the opportunity to start something new in 1997, which was the Bronx Defenders, gave me the opportunity to actually start fresh and begin to think about how do I think about filling those gaps with my team, right? There were eight of us that started. I certainly didn't do this alone. Um, and we began to really ask some of those hard questions. Why do people in communities that are represented by public defenders, which are low-income communities and communities of color in New York City, um, feel so negatively towards their public defenders? What is it about public defenders that we have done wrong in terms of individual representation and in engaging with and partnering with clients and communities to make change? Um, and so it was an opportunity to answer all those questions. But the first thing I did was I learned how to listen. And I really committed myself to having that first team ask the important questions and listen and learn before we actually decided what the model ought to look like. And then over time, we developed an interdisciplinary model that is the Bronx Defenders Holistic Defender Model that provides representation that addresses both the underlying issues driving people into the system and, as you said in your introduction, the collateral consequences or impacts that result from criminal justice involvement. But the other thing we learned how to do was to partner with communities and to partner with clients to also raise the larger systemic injustice um, that we see everywhere in the criminal legal system and to fight back. What I've learned about, and holistic defense may mean something conceptually to people, but what I think I've learned about what you all do, what you created at BXD, is this notion that you get caught in a web, like something happens to you um, and you find yourself in the criminal justice system. And there's, it's almost like, it's like this sticky web that sticks to you and you think you get it off of one hand. And then all of a sudden you move from criminal to family court that you get caught in there and you can't get out. Um, and that holistic defense is also not just about the preventative stuff, but also recognizing that you, once you get in, you might find your way to a whole variety of different um, components of the justice system, and that that BXD has to be an organization that has a an expertise in each of those areas. Yeah, the simple way to put it is an arrest is never just an arrest. Um, and so what happens when you're arrested and put into the criminal legal system in this country is that there are a host of other issues that spring from that arrest, even if it's minor. Um, it could be your housing. It could be the custody of your children. It could be your immigration status. It could be your public benefits. It could be your financial aid to go to college that is all at risk just by having entered the criminal legal system. Um, and so if you put together an interdisciplinary team of advocates and lawyers who can look at all of those issues and provide advocacy and representation in those areas of consequence, you can hopefully prevent some of the damage that the criminal legal system will do to you um, and maybe even help stabilize somebody and their family. Now, there are other um, public defense organizations that have a similar model, yes or no? So there are lots of public defender organizations across the country that have begun to develop their own models of holistic defense. Um, I like to think of it as being practiced along a spectrum, right? So some people have really thought about how to engage their offices and their local communities. Some people have really thought about how to bring civil legal advocacy into their work. Some people have brought social work into the work. They might not have adopted all the principles of holistic defense that we do with the Bronx Defenders, but they have begun to move in that direction and 
more and more young law graduates are looking to public defender offices to take on some of the broader issues that are impacting not just individual clients, but families and communities and the larger issues of systemic injustice. So you began this project in 1997, uh, and you, you stayed until fairly recently, just for the benefit of our listeners. What did Bronx Defenders become in that, what probably is about 20 years, right? It was 20 years almost exactly. Um, we started with eight people in a tiny little office, and we grew to an organization with 320 advocates representing almost 30,000 people from the Bronx a year in uh, both criminal court and family court and civil court and housing and public benefits and entitlements um, and any other host of issues that uh, need to be addressed. We also had developed an impact litigation team. They do incredible work challenging systemic injustice that's impacting our clients and their community. Um, so it has become a very large organization with, I like to think, a big footprint and lots of impact. So you were the voice and face of Bronx Defenders for a long time. Um, and I, and I, I want people out there who, uh, who are founders of organizations to hear from you. How did you extract yourself? And I'm I'm curious, do you feel like you stayed the right amount of time or did you maybe, if in hindsight, do you feel like you overstayed your welcome? And I, I have no judgment attached to either answer. Well, I certainly hope nobody thinks I overstayed my welcome. Um, I began thinking about succession and succession planning um, a couple years before I actually stepped down as the executive director. I'm very much a believer in delegating responsibility and authority to people around you who have proven themselves to be incredible uh, team members and colleagues and visionaries and leaders. Um, I felt confident when I left that we had a management team in place that could uh, steer the ship forward and re-envision its future. Um, I think it's really important for founders and executive directors to not overstay their welcome. I hope I didn't. Um, but I left at a time that I think the organization was more than prepared for uh, my leaving. I think that the narrative around criminal justice reform has changed in this country. That is wind behind its back as well. Um, and um, I like to think that it was the right time for me personally as well. I do a lot of CEO coaching and a lot of transition and change management work in my consulting practice. And all I will say is that um, Bronx Defenders ended up making an internal hire, which is um, always nice to see if it's the right hire and not typical. Oftentimes, boards will go looking outside for their next executive director, especially if they've had someone in the uh, founder or, as we call it, the long and strong category. So, so very interesting. Um, I've often wondered if Bronx Defenders was such a unique and fantastic model, rather than become a serial founder of other organizations, which we'll talk about in a second, um, why not take and say, okay, we're doing something really unique, and now it's time to grow it outside of the Bronx or, or outside of New York and make it a national model that other people can follow? So we certainly hoped that that was the impact our existence would have. And I think we have had a lot of influence on public defender organizations around the country and how people talk about public defense and what the expectations are for public defenders moving forward. Um, we were very much committed to being Bronx-based and being responsive to the needs of the clients and the families and the communities in the Bronx. And to develop a model that I like to think has pillars 
that can be used in any jurisdiction, but will necessarily have to adapt itself to the unique communities that they're serving, to the particular cultures of the criminal legal system in those areas. So the model was actually created so that it could actually be recreated across the country by following the four pillars of holistic defense. Um, but we didn't think that we should be the people setting those up and that people on the ground in their own jurisdictions knew those places best um, and could best do that work. Um, that's interesting. And we'll come back to that point when we get to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, interesting. And and would you say that you are pleased about the extent to which the model has been replicated or do you wish you were seeing more? Well, I'm never satisfied. That's just part of my personality. So I Oh yeah, you're the more. person that sees the gaps, right? <laughs> always. Um, I very rarely see what's happening and I almost always see what's not happening. And so um, it is um, certainly my desire that, that this happened more and more. And I should say, you know, we did training for public defenders across the country for about six years through a grant of, uh, by the Department of Justice. And I created this thing called the Center for Holistic Defense, which really meant that we went out to other jurisdictions and worked with public defender chiefs around the country and tried to work with them in transitioning their offices towards a more holistic model. And we did see a lot of successes there. And that sort of taken off on its own at this point um, and hopefully will continue to do so. That's awesome. We are talking with Robin Steinberg. I have dubbed her a serial founder. She is the leader and pioneer in the field of indigent defense and the founder of not one, not two, but three nonprofit organizations, each in their own right, an innovative model reshaping the world of public defense in profound ways. The Bronx Defenders, which you can find at bronxdefenders.org. The Bail Project, which you can find at bailproject.org. And Still She Rises, which you can find at stillsherises.org. So Robin, in our conversation a few weeks back, you said, founders can't wait to be ready. They just have to take a leap of faith. So is that what happened with you um, with, and, and let's start with the bail project and talk about how it got started. And then we can talk about Still She Rises, launched in 2007, a remarkably simple idea and remarkably powerful. And I grabbed this from the website and I just wanted to read it because it's just the kind of thing that just kind of gets you at hello. When someone gets locked up and can't afford to pay their bail, they have two choices plead guilty to the crime, or sit in jail until our backlogged courts can bring them to trial, which in many cases can take years. We believe that people shouldn't have to plead guilty to a crime they may have committed just because they can't afford a bail payment, which is why we are paying people's bail. So I'm doing the math. It's pretty clear that you started the bail project about 10 years before you left the helm of Bronx Defenders. Again, I'm impressed and a little bit confused. So tell me about the origin story and compare it contrast with the the Bronx Defenders narrative of, you know, sort of identifying the gap and the the serial founder-ness. So in 2007, I was sitting with my husband, David, and we were railing about the uh, injustices of the criminal legal system. He had also been a public defender. And he looked up and said at some point, you know, it's ridiculous. People just keep pleading guilty and there's nothing we can do to stop it because if they're going to stay in jail, they're going to plead guilty. And we were bemoaning the fate of the criminal legal system. And all of a sudden he said, you know, what we really ought to do is why don't we just start a bail fund and start bailing our clients out? which seemed like a crazy idea, but I've, I've learned one thing um, over all my years of being sort of an innovator and heading things is that the crazier the idea, the more impactful it might be. 
So we began to really look into, is that possible? Can you do it? Is it ethical? Is it legal? Um, and got a lot of legal opinions about how we could possibly create a bail fund. Of course, even when you think about what that model might look like, we still had to go out and raise money for it. And quite frankly, in 2007, people thought it was insane. Um, the board at the Bronx Defenders, I think, was a little bit concerned about starting a separate thing um, internally. They had a lot of interesting and smart ideas about how we might be able to do that and separate the Bronx Defenders from the Bronx Freedom Fund, even though it was still both were partly my babies. And so we came up with a way to create a separate 501c3, but to make the bail money available to Bronx Defenders clients. Uh, so we created both separation, but also had it benefit our clients at the Bronx Defenders. So that was really the connection there. And then ran that fund for over a decade out of the Bronx Defenders office, but with somebody who was a separate project manager uh, running a separate 501c3 that had its own board and its own way of running things. And did you make a choice about having a separate 501c3 for a particular reason? Because I'm, I'm also thinking that you could, ha could you just not have had it be a program initiative of the Bronx Defenders where you also raised bail money for your clients and that that was the sort of the scope of that? Well, there were questions about whether public defenders or lawyers can actually be involved in bailing clients out generally. Um, and so some of the ethics experts on our board thought that the cleaner way to do this was was to have a separate 501c3 that had its own charter and its own status. And that makes sense to me. So it also separated out the fundraising opportunities, right, for one over the other one. Very interesting. Now, that didn't completely spin out and away from Bronx Defenders until you spun out and away from Bronx Defenders. Is that correct? It spun out a little bit. So the Bronx Freedom Fund uh, grew and uh, was able to develop more people and eventually moved out of the Bronx Defenders offices into its own space. That happened actually before I left the Bronx Defenders. So it was becoming its own larger not-for-profit even as I was preparing to leave the Bronx Defenders. Fascinating. And of course, there's still more, you know. In 2017, you began a program out of Bronx Defenders called my favorite title of an organization recently, Still She Rises. So here using, again, using your uh, superpower peripheral vision and probably that uh, women's study degree, you were able to connect the dots and understand that something had to be done to look closely at the fastest growing prison population in the United States, which is women. And um, this was a fascinating thing for me to learn that ground zero for this is in the state of Oklahoma, where this trend is twice the national rate. So first of all, before we get into the origin story of Still She Rises, I'm actually curious, I suspect others are too, why Oklahoma? What What's the, is there, yeah, why is it, and I think it's most specifically in Tulsa, right? Why in Tulsa, Oklahoma is the trend twice the national rate? Um, it's actually the state of Oklahoma, and Tulsa is actually slightly better than the state of Oklahoma on this issue, partly through the work of uh, the George Kaiser Foundation and, and trying to decarcerate women there. But um, mm -hmm. Oklahoma still remains the highest incarcerated women in the world. Um, and why is an interesting question. In, in large measure, I think it was driven by uh, very, very harsh drug laws. 
um, and women are the unintended victims of the war on drugs, which we all know really turned out to be the war on the poor, but that's a different topic for a different day. And so women were getting swept up into the system in huge numbers, and particularly in Oklahoma, where most personal possession of drug cases were actually felonies, not even misdemeanors. And so it was driving women into the prison system. Uh, it's also because women are, uh, the bails are very high there. Women are held in pretrial detention, um, more likely to be held in pretrial detention than men on bail because they are at the low end of the economic totem pole. And so I think women got swept up in the system. And then there's something about the narrative about personal responsibility and motherhood that I think is unique and specific to a place like Oklahoma that makes the sentencing and the reactions to people that fall out of the norm particularly harsh. And I think all those factors led to the over-incarceration of women. So I'm imagining myself, um, just for a brief moment, to be a board member at the Bronx Defenders. And in you come into a board meeting and you've started a 501c3 called the Bail Project, and now you come into the boardroom and you start talking about wanting to do something in Oklahoma. What did your board think of all of these things? And you can tell listeners about what you wanted to do in Oklahoma first, but I was sort of just generally thinking, okay, you have more ideas than there seemed to be time in the day. I First of all, I wondered, what did your board think of all this? The second thing is, there must have been other ideas that you um, <laughs> that you threw up against the wall that didn't that didn't actually fly. But I just wondered, what is what is your board? What did your board think about all these different ideas? So I was incredibly lucky, right? I had a board that believed in me and supported me and generally thought that if I had an idea, it's probably a pretty good one. Um, I think they also saw the potential for um, Still She Rises to be a blueprint for other public defenders across the country, much like the Bronx defenders have become a blueprint for holistic defense. We wanted Still She Rises to become a blueprint for public defenders in how to represent women in the criminal legal system, what's different about defending women in the system than defending men. Um, and what might we do different as public defenders? So in that way, it was aligned with the sort of broader idea that we were setting a gold standard of sorts um, in this new area. I'm sure that they were more surprised by the idea that I would actually step foot in Oklahoma than that we were going to create something in Oklahoma. Um, I, I am such a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker that the idea of me being in Oklahoma was almost amusing. But I had you know, developed some very strong relationships with some folks down there uh, during my years at the Center for Holistic Defense when I was training their public, their Tulsa County Public Defender Office in holistic defense techniques. And I was lucky enough to meet uh, some of the amazing people at the George Kaiser Family Foundation, specifically Amy Santi, who is another visionary, world-changing force of nature who puts me to shame, who had this idea that maybe we could start a Bronx Defenders type public defender office in Oklahoma, but their focus has always been on women in women's incarceration and, gee, maybe we can just do this for women. And I felt like somehow the stars had aligned and I was returning full circle to my feminist roots and yep. to that burning desire I had when I was in college and before, even as a teenager, that I wanted to fight for women's rights and I wanted to be a women's rights litigator. So it was this opportunity for me to both combine the work I'd done at the Bronx Defenders, but also to really finally merge it with, um, you know, my desires to be doing work on behalf of women and particularly mothers in the system. So you had no board members who felt compelled to rein you in and say, you know, we're about the Bronx. Like, I get this whole Oklahoma thing is really interesting, but we're about the Bronx. Nobody, nobody, uh, nobody tried to rein you in or were, are you just not, is it just hard to rein you in? 
and tough to be reined in when I have an idea that I really <laughs> think can work. Um, but I'm right. sure that there were people that were concerned that it was going to distract me from the work in the Bronx. I'm sure there yep. were people at the Bronx Defenders that felt like it was a distraction from the work we do on behalf of the Bronx community. I've always thought the work we were doing at the Bronx Defenders was broader and wider and deeper, although obviously our first allegiance was to the clients and the families and community we're serving in the Bronx. But I didn't see them as mutually exclusive, uh, and I thought we could do both, and I think we somehow have managed to do that. So I was lucky yeah, I had a supportive board. I, I, th I think your vision... It seemed to me, and I don't, and I, I guess that's part of the question about how the board sees the organization. You saw the organization as a seemingly almost as incubating models of innovative public defense. That's correct. I, I see it. I still do. I see it as a laboratory for incubating all sorts of interesting new ideas. Um, you know, whether it's Still She Rises or whether it was the Bronx Freedom Fund and then ultimately the Bell Project. Um, whether it is, what does it look like to create a community reception center and what does that look like and what should an office space say to the clients and the community you're serving? I think it's become an incubator for all sorts of fantastic ideas, you know, in large measure because the staff that we're lucky enough to bring to the Bronx Defenders are so gifted and brilliant and dedicated that these ideas just percolate to the top. So um, my understanding is that the Still She Rises project, um, you, in in fact, that was not a standalone 501c3 at first like the bail project because of the, the you didn't have the same kind of ethical concerns or constraints. But you, you, in fact, deployed Bronx Defender attorneys to Tulsa. Or what, what, actually, why don't you tell the story? <laughs> no, it's, it's a good question. You're right that it's a, it was a project of the Bronx Defenders and not a separate 501c3. And, you know, I remember sitting down at my desk and composing the email to the Bronx Defenders staff saying, hey, um, I really want to start this thing called Still She Rises in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's going to require um, people to be willing to go to Tulsa and to start this new public defender office in a holistic model. We're going to be defending just women, particularly mothers in the system. And who wants to come? And I said to my husband, nobody is going to want to come. It's going to be just me in Oklahoma. And it's okay. I, I love the place and I love the people I've met there, but it's going to be just me. Um, and he was confident. He said, just hit send. You'll see. And I hit send. And sure enough, lots and lots of people at the Browns Defenders wrote me back saying, I'd love to be considered for this. I want to talk about this. Can we meet about this? Um, and so I was lucky enough to be able to recruit an inaugural team who met me down in Oklahoma in I want to say November of 2016. Everybody had to be there by November 1st. And people drove down and moved down, and we began to start the process of starting a new public defender office there. And so if um, characterized for folks, what is the stage of development you would, how would you characterize the stage of development of Still She Rises? You're about six, seven months, nine months in. Yeah, so we're actually, we're at 18 months in. Um, right, oh, I'm sorry. Started, yep, you know, yep. was right, and I remember it because it was the election. We got there, and the next week was the presidential election. Which, that would be an easy way to remember it. That would be. It was yes. Um, and I had the team over to my house for an election day party, so it was it's quite memorable that we had started then. You know, we are past our inaugural stage. The pioneering team um, have all sort of lived out their commitments. Some have stayed. Some are going to different places. We have begun to hire people from all over the country to join the project. It has its bones. It has its space. It has its own case management system. It has its 
real understanding of the community that we're serving, which is the community of North Tulsa, uh, which is unique and specific because it has a history of racial violence that was sort of um, one of the worst examples in our nation's history uh, from the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. So we're in that community, serving women from that community. And we have really begun to ask ourselves and answer the questions about what does holistic defense look like in this community uh, for right. the women that we are defending here? And how is it different than the work we did in the Bronx? And what advocates do we need in place to make this move to its next phase? It is going to be spinning off as its own 501c3 and hopefully leading the nation in redefining how we provide public defense to women who people who identify as women and people who are mothers. So it is not currently a 501c3. What is it? Uh, it is an LLC that is a project of the Bronx Defenders, but it is becoming its own 501c3. Got it. Okay. Uh, and what is your relation? So now let's now let's actually talk a little bit about uh, your relationship to each of your uh, the organizations that you uh, that you have founded. So you moved away from Bronx Defenders. You're no longer you no longer have any formal affiliation with Bronx Defenders. That's right. Do you have a formal affiliation with Still She Rises? I do. I am still its director, and I still go to Oklahoma every month. Um, it also is a site of a bail project site, so I get to sort of do both things when I'm there. Um, <laughs> and we are doing a national search now for somebody to become the executive director of Still She Rises, who can be on the ground full-time in Oklahoma and take this project where it can go. So I'm actually just curious, are you positioning that search as this is uh, about... Oklahoma, but it's about more than Oklahoma in a similar way to the way that you think about Bronx Defenders? Yes. It's first and foremost about representing um, mothers and women in Oklahoma, but it is definitely part of our vision that it is going to become a blueprint for how that should be happening across the country with other public defenders. Okay. And now let's move on to your third child. Um your third child, which is the Bail Project. And by the way, for those of you who hear in Robin's voice that she is a born and bred New Yorker, let me just say that she is coming to us today from Los Angeles, where she currently lives. <laughs> just to make it even more confusing. Uh, well, I think you are you are a, a batch of contradictions sometimes. It's probably true. Um, so the Bail Project was an unexpected joy and gift. I had thought for a long time that the Bronx Freedom Fund could be a national model for bail funds across the country. And to be quite honest, the first five to eight years of uh, the Bronx Freedom Fund being in existence, I talked all over the country and talked to lots of people about starting bail funds. It wasn't getting a lot of traction. Bail reform had not yet really taken hold. Um, there were obviously small community bail funds that were happening, and obviously people from low-income communities and their families and churches and social networks have been trying to pay bail for their loved ones for as long as you know jails have existed. But a revolving, sustainable bail fund was still a new idea. And so we ran it, and then um, a collaborative of funders decided that they thought the idea was uh, smart and impactful and could make a real difference in people's lives, maybe even ignite more bail reform as we move forward. And so I was lucky enough to be notified that these funders wanted to fund our national expansion. So the way I think about it is that the Bronx Freedom Fund, which is still its own 501c3, actually was the proof of concept 
that a revolving bail fund is a sustainable model, that it can have a difference in people's lives, that people will come back to court without supervision or surveillance or conditions, um, that philanthropic dollars can be used and that money is not actually the incentive that makes people come back to court. So that proof of concept being in place for 10 years, we were lucky enough to get funded. And uh, now we're in the process of scaling what we call the bail project, which is now operating in Tulsa, Oklahoma, two sites in St. Louis, in Louisville, Kentucky, in Detroit, and the Bronx Freedom Fund is operating in Queens and Bronx, New York, and we are set to launch more sites um, each year as we go along. Fantastic. And your formal affiliation with the Bail Project? Uh, I am the CEO and founder of the Bail Project. Um, and I have a fantastic inaugural team who have come to California and Los Angeles to join our central team as we open sites across the country and look towards both, you know, providing a lifeline for people being held in jail cells who are being harmed and, and whose families are being devastated by pretrial detention. Um, and it's important to remember that these are folks that have not been convicted of anything. They're just there because they don't have enough money to pay their bail, um, a point that gets lost in the conversation very often. Um, and we're really looking forward to being able to use philanthropic dollars to provide bail assistance to tens of thousands of people over the next few years as hopefully bail reform on a systemic level moves forward. I can speak from experience over dinner on Saturday night. Someone was asking me why I had all of my podcast, you know, mixer and all of that stuff here. And I'm sort of on vacation. And someone asked me who my podcast guest was. And it began a conversation about public defenders. And I, my brother is an attorney. My nephew is an attorney. And the jaw-dropping, eye-opening of smart, well-versed, well-read people who did not understand how many people sit in jail who have not been accused of a crime simply because they cannot afford to pay their bail. And it's what you're doing in addition to generating the dollars to actually help these people is is raising public awareness and hopefully the outrage that comes with it that, um, that, that's, that this is actually happening. Because I think so many people don't know. I think that's right. I think a lot of people don't understand that the majority of people sitting in our local jails in this country are there because they don't have enough money to pay bail and they have not been convicted of anything. And that is a shocking fact when you learn it and when you couple that with the reality of the horrific conditions that people have to survive in in jails right around this country, um, which are terrifying places, uh, it, it becomes even more shocking. How do you, so as someone who, you know, if someone was going, thinking to themselves and was compelled by this podcast, and, and I, I hope that they are, to contribute to one, two, or three of Robin Steinberg's children, how does decisions get made? If I, if I make a $1,000 gift to the Detroit site of the bail project, how does my money get allocated? How, are the, how does that decision get made? So people um, donate money in a variety of ways, right? If they, they can donate money to the bail project itself, and many people do, and it's unconditional, and that goes to housing the central team as well as having a revolving bail fund. The central team provides to all of those sites across the country technology, data, evaluation, financial management, sort of human resources management, um, as well as anything else that the teams need. We will send in people from the central 
technical team to help those sites and make sure that everything is running well and that we're having as much impact as possible. So money can either go to the general organization, which is the bail project, or people can also donate and say, hey, you know, I want to give some money to a revolving bail fund, but I really want to do it in my own community. Can you target this towards the Detroit fund or can you target it to the Louisville fund? And we will honor that, of course. And any money that comes in on the website that just comes in through people who are donating on the website, that will all go to bail. So that will all go to money that is actually dollars that are actually used to assist somebody who failed. And so give us a sense of, and then I want to ask a couple of founder questions and then I'll let you go. Uh, where are you at in terms of your budget and the amount of money that you've been able to raise? So we raised about um, half the money that we need for a five-year scaling plan. I am hoping against all hopes that in five years, unaffordable cash bail is no longer a reality in this country. We can put ourselves out of business. That would be an amazing day. But until that time comes, we'll continue to sort of raise money to support the sites around the country and provide bail assistance for people. So we're about halfway to where we want to be in our five-year model. But that's a pretty good place to be in your first year. Uh, I would say it's a very good place to be. But there's something else I hope that listeners heard in what Robin just said. Robin has a destination. She can articulate in a very simple, clear, compelling way. In five years, we want to fill in the blank. And the more that your organization is able to provide that kind of vision that is not you know, has clearly has some aspiration attached to it, of course, but is also something people can really wrap their arms around, the much more likely you are to achieve your um, fundraising goals because people understand, they understand where you're traveling. Don't you think, Robin? I do, 100%. And, and I've seen that particularly in the uh, incredibly generous donors to the Bail Project, right? It's they see the return on investment, they see the scalability, they recognize that a revolving bail fund has enormous impact and that a single dollar can revolve two or three times a year, but they also see that we have an end game and that end game is to actually shut down and not be necessary any longer. Um, and while until we get to that beautiful day, um, you know, we will end human suffering as much as possible and we will continue to feed the rest of the field with information and data and human stories about the impact that getting out of jail can have on somebody um, as well as staying in jail has on somebody. Here, here. Um, a couple of quick uh, founder-related questions for you before I uh, let you go back to starting. <laughs> I don't know. You're probably about to start something else before dinner time. Um, so you told me a few weeks ago that founders have to have internal confidence and trust their gut, and it's not about ego. Don't you think that's where founders actually get tripped up, that they move from kind of getting really wrapped up in their mission to getting that uh, their identity getting completely interwoven with it? It's really hard not to have your identity, you know, woven into something you've created, right? Just if, if you have children, people overly identify with their children, their children's successes or their successes. And it's really important, I think, in all of those different realms to sort of step back and recognize, yes, I might have had the idea or I might have lit the fire, but that where we have gone, we've gone because of the thousands of people that have come through our doors at the Bronx Defenders or the hundreds of people that have come through our doors at the Bronx Freedom Fund or Still She Rises or the Bail Project. And that at the end of the day, founders are really making good on the dedication and enthusiasm and hard work and deep belief in the work that the people they're working with are giving them. Um, we're just carrying it, but it's not really about us. 
Although that having been said, there is something very important, I think, about founders learning how to trust their own instincts. And that doesn't mean to be reckless, but that at some point you develop over time, you know, a gut instinct about things that you need to be able to hear as well and share that with your colleagues and your teammates and your management team and your staff so that they understand where you're going and why you're going and being willing to listen to other people's ideas. And I have to say that as I get older, listening to new generations' ideas becomes more and more interesting and more and more critical to both my development as a person, but my development as a leader and a manager and a CEO of a new organization. It's interesting to me because I think the longer that a founder stays, the more problematic it can be for an organization because the organization becomes overly identified with that founder and the relationships become about the relationships they have with uh, Robin Steinberg rather than the Bronx Defenders. It seems like the antidote for you has been to identify another gap and to create new opportunities through Bronx Defenders that allowed you to allow Bronx Defenders to become this institution that is, has been able to clearly thrive and stand alone when you moved away from it. But I think that that's, you know, typically if, if I look at a profile of a founder who's been around for 20 years, I think to myself, God help the person who succeeds that person because the organization is so um, deeply, deeply identified with the founder. But it seems to me that your innovation uh, DNA helped to, um, it has been sort of an antidote to that. Well, I appreciate that. I, I also think founders need to recognize that it's really hard. I know it's really, really hard. I talk about this with lots of my friends who are at the sort of same stage in their life and have been doing the same thing for a long time. It's we have an obligation also to grow young and new leadership that's going to come up behind us, right? And and I like to think about, you know, this work was done before I existed. This work has been done while I'm here. And this work will go on long before I'm even on this planet any longer. And you have to understand that you're just a part in that vast array of talent that are coming through um, the world of whether it's indigent defense or bail reform or criminal legal reform or any other area that people are working on for social and racial justice and change in this country. And to recognize that you're just one piece of it. But not to become so deeply invested in it that you think you're the only piece in it or that it won't survive. And I always like to say, nobody's indispensable in this. And people sometimes misinterpret that as like, I don't care if people come and go. I do care, right? I, in fact, take those things quite personally. But right. I also recognize that no organization should be so dependent on one person that they become indispensable, um, that it really is a collaborative effort. I, yeah, the, the analogy I like to use is a relay race, right? Is that you you held the baton at Bronx Defenders and your job is to pass it to someone and to make sure that while you're at Bronx Defenders that you've that you've built a leadership pipeline that there was somebody awesome to hand it to and they'll hold it for a period of time and pass it along as well. Absolutely. That is exact that is exactly what needs to happen. It's hard and look, it's hard to do. I'm not saying it's easy. It's really hard to let go. I had to lock my door late at night when nobody was in the office. I had to pack my things in boxes with only two people with me in the room and we drank some whiskey and I threw things in boxes and I literally made my exit in the middle of the night because it was just too hard to do it any other way for me. But we need to discipline ourselves um, to really think about future leadership and really think about next steps and really think about what else you have to offer in the world, right? Just because you leave one thing doesn't mean you don't have something else to offer somewhere else. Uh, and maybe that keeps the continuum going. 
Well, it certainly seems to have done exactly that for you. And it sounds like you got the next five years ahead of you uh, pretty locked up until you cook up something else. Um, and I, ho- I hope you keep cooking because, again, you're playing in this, you're in this space where you're absolutely right. What you said at the very beginning is that this is a system in which the gaps are, um, they're pretty easy to see because there are so many of them. They are. And the other thing I would just say, the last thing I'd say about that is if you are not innovating, if you are not changing, if you are not staying flexible and coming up with new ideas, you will miss the bigger picture because the criminal legal system in this country will recreate itself in a million different forms if you do not watch carefully and with vigilance. So you may think you solved one thing and then it's gonna recreate the same problem in a different area. And you have to be on your toes and be willing to innovate to sort of keep that sort of new thing down. I like to think about it as the criminal legal system is like a -a whack-a-mole game where (laughs) just as you hit one mole and it goes down, another one pops up somewhere. And you see it because these systems are really entrenched and the interests of play are so entrenched that unless we continue to innovate, and by innovate I mean having founders that create new leadership for new people to come along with new ideas and continue to innovate, we will never keep those moles down in the holes where they belong. Uh, And I don't think that that's any less true in varying other arenas. I mean, I think I could probably fill in the blank with, you know, women's rights or any number of, you know, sectors or movements that innovation is absolutely critical because of all the things you just said. Absolutely. So um, thank you to Robin Steinberg, our serial founder. I want to make sure that I provide you with the information about all three of Robin's organizational children, the Bronx Defenders, which you can find. Please go to each of these three organizations, learn more about them, take the opportunity to learn and uh, give yourself a gift and get more involved if you can. BronxDefenders.org, BailProject.org, and StillSheRises.org. Um, Robin, thank you for everything, um, for sharing your insights today and for the vast array of ways that you're making a contribution to the world of indigent defense. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So that wraps it up for us today. Um, A little bit longer than usual, but when somebody founds three organizations, you can't exactly do it in a half hour or less. So glad you were with us. Hope you were able to take away some things uh, today that were useful to you. And a couple of other quick things. You can always join us at joangary.com with two R's for uh, and subscribe to my weekly blog uh, with insights and observations and practical, actionable advice for board and staff leaders of nonprofits, as well as take a look at the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, which is our um, monthly subscription membership site for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. It's currently closed, but will be opening again later this year. And you can learn more about that at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. And until next time, thank you so much for all the work that you do. Take care. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits, at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.